This conference will now be recorded. All right, good afternoon and welcome to our annual uh, session on ethics for mediators. And uh, we are pleased to have back Professor Artin Shah from Arizona State University. He is a national expert on mediator ethics and he's presented for us before. He's a very popular presenter. Uh, so let us welcome Professor Hinshaw. Susan Bullfinch is new to presenting for us, uh, but she has been a mediator for us since 2007. Uh, so thank you very much for your service. Uh, she does, uh, she specializes in business, family, and workplace and employment matters. Uh, she is a mediator for the U.S. Postal Service and uh, for the American Arbitration Association. She serves on the Employment Mediation Panel. Uh, and uh, so we are very pleased to have Susan present for us. I know that um, they're both excited about this. And for those of you who are on the phone, this really would be a better experience if you were connected via video. And I hope you have the materials. Uh, we, when we get to the scenarios, we, if you do have the ability to turn your camera on, please turn your camera on uh, so that we can engage. I, I know that they really do want to engage. Uh, and so um, we'll go ahead and uh, kick the session off. Uh, Art, Susan? All right. So welcome, everybody. Great to see you all again. It's always fun to get uh, the mediators together. Uh, in the justice courts because we don't get much of an opportunity to chat and discuss things. Um, and just as a preview on, uh, Susan, is it, it's the 30th, right? The 30th, we're going to be yes. doing hot topics. Yeah. Hot topics. So um, that's about two and a half weeks. Right. At the, at the end of the month and it will start at 11. And I'm sure that uh, Charles and Taj will have a lot more information. Taj, great to see you in person as well, after all these times. You too. Um, so we are going to start our program out with something that uh, Susan and I were curious about, actually. This is an ethics program. So what happens if there is an ethics complaint? Um, sort of what's the process? What does the court do? in these situations. Um, so I thought um, basically we would just start off with these three questions. Um, and so I don't know, Taj or Charles, how you want to handle this, but here they are. How are the complaints handled? How many complaints have you received? Are there any issues that come up more often than any others? So uh, I will jump in on that topic because I am, as the administrative pro tem, the person who handles complaints about pro tems, hearing officers, officers and mediators. Um, I will tell you how complaints are received. They can come in from a variety of sources. Sometimes after individuals leave the courtroom, if they are unhappy with the result or the way that they've been treated or the way that they feel they are case has been handled, they go to the window and they start to compl complain to the court clerk. And when that happens, the court clerk gives them my information and directs them to me. So sometimes I get a phone call or I get an email from a member of the public who has been before you as a mediator and who is simply unhappy with any number of issues. 
Um, it could be, although I do not get a lot of complaints about mediators and I've only been in this position since August. So I have not yet even had a full year, but I will say in the time period that I've been here, I don't believe, let me double check, but I don't believe that I've had any complaints against mediators. The majority of the complaints that I receive tend to be um, against pro tems and hearing officers. Um, I've, I might have had one or two uh, complaints against the mediator. And so when that happens, I get the information of the individual. I usually reach out to the mediator or a hearing officer or pro tem to explain what the um, what the concern is and ask for basically your recollection of the events. Um, sometimes people are simply unhappy with the result and I make it clear to them that that is not something that the justice courts can do anything to resolve, that the, the, the rulings or the results are what they are. But sometimes the complaints are more related to the behavior, demeanor, treatment of the, um, the officer, the judicial officer or the mediator. And in those instances, we look at it as a training opportunity um, for, this is something that just doesn't really impact you guys, but for hearing officers and for pro tems, the, the hearings are recorded and so, I have an opportunity to review the SPR tape and see whether or not there's anything of concern that perhaps might require a little additional education or training. Um, for mediations, that's a little different. And so really it's an opportunity for me as a liaison with the public to let them know that their concerns are being heard, to explain the process to them because frequently complaints are based on the fact that people don't fully understand what the process is and how it was to go. So to explain the process to them and if there is an issue that requires some additional training, if there's something that I identify that could do with a little bit more education, then I'll reach out to you guys and just let you know, hey, you know, perhaps for future reference, the best practice says that this might be the better way to handle that situation or I'll let Charles know if there's something that looks like our mediators, our protons, our hearing officers need some more training in a specific subject area. Um, I haven't, like I said, I haven't gotten a lot of complaints against mediators, so I don't have any particular ethical issues that are raised or that I see more often than others. If anything, and Art knows this because I reach out to him, my understanding what I've learned about mediation is that there is not a uh, code of ethics for the mediators um, like the, what the pro tems have. So it's a lot more of a gray, ambiguous area because there is no specific standard that Arizona has enacted or that is nationally um, recognized. And so you guys are kind of the wild, wild west of this. So if anything, I, I welcome the opportunity for outreach with all of you. If there are issues that you see coming up frequently that you would like, um, to, to be addressed or a little bit more guidance on, please let me know so that Charles and I can coordinate and make sure that we're addressing what your needs are because you see mediations all the time. I only hear about it very, very sporadically. So, thank you. And, and, and I will uh, add to Taj's answer. Taj uh, began during the pandemic and uh, we've 
cut down on the number of mediations we've had during the pandemic. So I think she's had less of an opportunity to, to handle uh, complaints about mediations because we just haven't done very many of them. Um, historically, when we've done more mediations, there, there are complaints. Uh, those complaints uh, pertain to mediators favoring one side or the other. Um, I give, if um, you're, you're obviously going to be more familiar with the attorneys that you see more often than you are with the self-represented litigants, and you need to avoid the impression that you're overly familiar with the attorneys. That, that is a frequent complaint. All right, so that, that brings up a good um, situation that we'll, you know, Susan, let's make sure and mark this so that we can come back to, all right, you know, you have, we see a lot of debt collection cases. What happens when the attorney who sits down or calls in is somebody who you've done, let's say, hundreds of, or a hundred cases, 50 cases? What do you do? What do you say? Do you talk about their kids? Those sorts of things. Um, so Taj and Charles, thank you so much. This is just something we've actually been curious about um, because back in the day, um, there were times where I know that uh, my students, and if you don't know me, uh, I have students who do mediations in the justice courts as well. They would um, co-mediate with some of the volunteer mediators. And we had a couple of situations that were students would report to me what happened and they was just out of control. Um, and so what would happen is then we would bring it to the person who was in Taj's role at the time. And then that person would handle it from there. And I think I know of two situations where volunteer mediators were terminated. Their services were just stopped because they said things that were just maybe, well, you just can't say those things in a courtroom to people who are coming to the court for services. Let's just put it that way. Um, and with that, I don't mean to engage your curiosity. I'm much more um, interested in getting into ethics. So let's go to this question. What is or what are ethics? Um, <clears throat> we could have a huge discussion about this and we could talk about, are we thinking about Aristotelian? Are we thinking about um, John Locke, what, what are we thinking about? All these philosophers, but really when it boils down to is ethics have to deal with how we interact with other people. And so what I like to say um, here is essentially how it's the ethics is typically the floor when it comes to professional ethics, I should say, it's the floor, like how low is, how low can you go? Um, you can do all this kind of conduct, but as long as it doesn't reach whatever specific standard it is, then you're okay. So what are we doing? We're balancing you know, nice and not as nice, fairness and equity, things along those lines. And the best thing that we really have are these. They are the joint model standards. This is model standards from the American Bar Association, the American Arbitration Association, and the Association of Conflict Resolution. And these three organizations got together, I think, I can't remember, Susan, the first ones, or are they, the ones that we use are like 05 or 06. Uh, they were originally drafted in 1994, but the newer version and the one that we sent to all of you or that you are probably looking at now was adopted in 2005. 
So these have been around for some time, but there's no bot, there's no mediation body, professional body to adopt these, um, to say that these are the standards. There's um, basically these aren't, these are what we look to, but there's nothing that makes them the law for lack of a better term. Um, now it may be that the American Arbitration Association says you're going to follow these rules if you're going to do any of our mediations. Um, and certainly any organization could do that. And the justice courts or the courts of Arizona could do that. I mean, all of the courts could do that if they wanted to. But right now, these are likely the standards to be applied. Why? Because they're the standards that are out there and are accepted by the field. And so these are in the packet. They're easily available online. Um, and so Susan and I are going to walk through them very quickly. And then where our plan is to get into some scenarios where we just work on applying them. And when we get to the scenarios, that's where we want to have a conversation and want you all to be involved um, in analyzing the specific situations that we have. So um, I'm going to start off with the first couple of these. But when, you, when you're looking at them, it's best to categorize them in three ways. What's focusing on the mediator? mediation process or practice consider considerations. So, so I'm going to take the first um, few here, but I was going to just uh, chime in and say many private practitioners, because I see some of the people on the phone here have uh, adopted these for their own, um, as their own standards. And also, if you were members of the Arizona Association for Conflict Resolution, there are some organizations that have adopted these model standards for themselves, as Art said, but not necessarily for justice courts or for the courts. So I just want to make that clarification and let you know that these have been out for a while now, and they really have been um, adopted by a lot of people, uh, practitioners. So. For the mediator-focused standards, uh, the first one I wanted to talk about, and if you have your uh, the standards in front of you, is standard to impartiality. And so you might say, well, what is impartiality? And that is defined as freedom from favoritism, bias, or prejudice. And Charles has just talked a little bit about, or, or touched, about the types of complaints that have come in. So as a mediator, your focus, of course, is on facilitating communication between the parties to define and clarify issues and explore solutions. Uh, but it is important to avoid even the appearance of partiality. So do not make judgments of a party based on their background, values, beliefs, uh, or performance during a mediation. I'm wondering if anybody on this call has, uh, maybe you could just raise your hand or let me know. Did you listen to Judge Lane McDonald's program on implicit bias? Is that a yes on anybody? Because she talks often about our being aware of our unconscious biases. And let's face it, when litigants meet you for the first time, they will make assumptions of you and vice versa. We all do. That is just what happens. However, the way that we conduct ourselves as professionals, treating each person respectfully, 
and adhering to the mediation process will help you to avoid problems. Uh, McDonald happened to mention the implicit association test, which is one that you can take if you are interested to uncover your own biases of which you may not be aware. And I'll give you a quick link for anybody who would be interested. www.projectimplicit.com. Uh, just to bear in mind that people may find that you are biased if you have had relationships with people before. And so it's important to be able to disclose that. And we're going to get into that on standard three, which is conflict of interest. And, and Susan, um, uh, let me, Susan, just let me uh, interrupt here. Does Art actually put that link into the chat box faster than I could? You beat me by about a split second. But for those of you who are new to this process, there is a chat box function. Uh, and if you click on that, we can ask <laughs> questions and have conversations in the chat box in addition to the class. So um, thank you, Susan. Oh, all right. So somebody will monitor that. Is that you? Perhaps yes. to do that? Yes. Um, chat. So our the second mediator focus standard is standard three on conflicts of interest. And a mediator shall avoid a conflict of interest or the appearance of one during and even after the mediation. So one question you might ask is when does mediation, when does, well, confidentiality, when does it begin and end? So it could begin with the first phone call somebody has with you about mediation all the way through the mediation and after the mediation. So thinking about that, what might be considered a conflict of interest? Consider the relationship you have with any of the participants at the mediation. Do you have a personal relationship or a connection? Do you recognize somebody? Is it a professional connection, social? Maybe you serve on a committee together. Did you see them at the dog park? Is it regular, occasionally? And what should you do? Uh, the rule of thumb here is to disclose that association as soon as possible, or as soon as that you become aware of that. And how might you do that? Be very open. Do I recognize you? Have we met before? Uh, you want to disclose so that there isn't a problem uh, or that you are undermining the integrity of the mediation. If you find that the conflict would or might undermine the integrity of the mediation, then you must withdraw or terminate as mediator. For future relationships, and this sometimes come up, what factors might you consider in establishing a personal or professional relationship? Consider how much time has elapsed following the mediation, nature of the relationship being established. Let's say you're an attorney, you were a volunteer mediator, you're in private practice, and all of a sudden now you're representing a party to the mediation. How many years has passed? Uh, 
is there any problem? Is there any, are you undermining the integrity of the previous mediation you were in? And what are the services being rendered? Will any of those act to create a perception of conflict of interest? And I'm wondering if anyone here on this call has had a situation where this has come up. Um, Art, did you want to talk about any situation sure. you've had? Sure. The closest I've had is um, with former students. I had a former student who was representing a party in one of the mediations. Um, and he, I want to say it was probably five to seven years from when he was in my class. Um, and so we disclosed this in the mediation. And I was doing this mediation with a student, so I let the student basically do everything. Um, I just sat back. Uh, I, I probably interjected a little bit. But there was one mediation um, I had. So this really only happened twice. And this is, I just finished my 16th, yes, one sixth year of uh, mediating in the justice courts. So the um, other one was when a student who had been at the College of Law, but not my student, walked in the room. Uh, this is, of course, when we were in person. And she was representing a debt collection company. And she said, I knew this was going to happen. I knew it. I knew it. I, and I was like, what are you talking about? I have no idea who this person is. But turns out she knew about us. Um, and so we went over, you know, do you know me? Do you know this person? I mean, with the student that I was with, all that kind of stuff to make it clear to the debtor in that case um, that we didn't have a relationship with this individual at all. And we asked this person, are you okay with us going forward? And he said, yes. Um, so we went ahead and did it. So those were two situations where I've had it. Susan, have you ever had this situation? Um, it's, it's been rare um, before. What I was going to say is I believe it's Desert Ridge. Am I right on that? That during the pandemic would give us the cases and the names of the litigants in advance. So when we were working with the students, I help Art out with the mediation clinic. So if we had the names of the parties in advance, and of course, maybe a little bit of, or at least the names, um, we could do a conflict check, so to speak. And I noticed in one of those that I knew the person, I knew the uh, defendant in one of the justice court cases. and. In, in that situation, I said, wow, I, I can't mediate this. There's a definite conflict of interest because I had a social connection. Not so much that I knew anything about the matter, but that I knew the person. So I called Art and then I said, can you or can one of the students take this case because I can't do that. But had I arrived at the courthouse and seen them, I would have had to uh, recuse myself because I, I couldn't I would have had to withdraw now the upshot is would there have been another mediator who could have taken it and so I might have looked for somebody else to do that or it would have had to be rescheduled and that may not have been the best thing for the litigants obviously and of course for the program so if there may be an advantage to knowing the names, or I'm going to throw it out there to the rest of the group, there may be an advantage to knowing who the parties are in advance. 
Having said that, um, it has happened to me only rarely, Art. So has it. So um, Charles, could you put the link uh, in the chat to the um, calendar, the court calendar? Because that's the best way to actually check for this. Because um, if you know your Tuesday at 1.30, right? Rocco knows that he has the whole day on Tuesday uh, at, let's just say, Desert Ridge. And um, then he can look and see who the people are, right? So, and that's what I do. Uh, and that's what we do in the clinic. And that's um, the best way I know of, at least to check it out beforehand. So if you could put that link, and then it lists all the courts um, up there. And you can go through and find out um, sort of who your mediation parties are. Uh, so you don't have this particular problem. <clears throat> I did have a situation where um, we do have some uh, debt collection attorneys come to the clinic and just present, this is the debt collection world, so they understand it. Um, and one day, you know, the, one of those attorneys showed up. The defendant didn't show up that day. Um, and I just told this attorney, I was like, look, I can't do this. Um, I'm going to let this person know that I can't do it. And I was the only mediator at the courthouse at that time. Um, so I was just going to disclose it. And of all things, he told me um, that he was going to end up dismissing this case because it had a lot of problems in it. Um, and so it turned out she didn't show up. So I don't know if that case ever really was dismissed or what happened to it, but, um, um, you know, close call, at least for conflict of interest. All right, um, Susan, I'm going to go to the next one. You ready? Okay. Our next mediator focus standard is standard four, which is competence. So this standard clearly states that a mediator shall mediate only when the mediator has the competence to satisfy the expectations of the party. So if you offer to mediate, be sure that you have training, which of course is provided um, here in the courts, skills and experience, as well as an understanding of cultural differences and other qualities. So um, I was going to have a one illustration about what another quality might be. Not necessarily applicable to justice court, but just to illust illustrate the point. If you were mediating a tense divorce case where there were past allegations of domestic violence or abuse, educating yourself in signs of domestic violence and resources might be helpful even bringing in, in that situation, a co-mediator or family specialist. Uh, if you feel you cannot conduct the mediation competently, or it's an area or that you just don't feel comfortable with, you may need to withdraw, terminate, or reschedule. And obviously, if you are under the influence of drugs or alcohol, you must not mediate, but that should be obvious to everybody. Uh, but this would be the competency one. Uh, I'm now going to turn it over to Art to talk about the focus on the mediation process and practice considerations. Um, okay, so on the process, again, you know, one of the interesting things about these standards is they're not difficult to understand. Um, but one thing is they don't really create a hierarchy within themselves. So it's not clear which one takes precedence over which one, right? So when they come into conflict, mm -hmm. you kind of have to make a call. 
based on the situation that's presenting itself. So just to be clear about that. Um, when it comes to the mediation process itself, self-determination is the key factor that makes mediation different than any other third party process. And so what do we mean by self-determination? Basically parties being able to make their own decisions, pretty easy. Um, this is where we have issues of mediator evaluation come in, where mediators will evaluate legal claims. They'll say, this is what the court is gonna do when this goes to trial and things along those lines. Now, sometimes that's really easy, right? You have debt collection cases where somebody says, yep, I owe this debt, that's mine. I sure do owe it. Well, you know what's gonna happen at trial there. Uh, or heck, is it even going to get to trial, right? You're going to get probably judgment on the pleadings in those situations. Um, when it comes to mediation, we just typically parties will be, they will understand that they're going to lose if they admit this. Um, but the problem comes, how much can we do? How much can we predict what courts are going to say and what courts are going to find? And um, the justice courts have historically asked us not to engage in this process, saying this is what the court is going to do. Um, because what happens if we are wrong? Right? It's the court. One part of the court is saying the court's going to do something because we are part of the court as mediators. And then the other part of the court does something different. Right. So essentially, we don't want to have the court contradicting itself. So it's best if we don't say things like the court will do X. The court's going to find against you. My experience tells me that one of the best things to do is when people say stuff is to ask them how they're going to prove it. Okay, so how are you going to prove this? You say that this happened. You know, what's your evidence basically is what you're saying. Ask them to show what they're going to give to the court. Um, so asking them to do the work as opposed to asking, having us do that kind of work. Um, now, of course, the most extreme examples of these, Steve, you maybe remember Gary Birnbaum, who passed away a couple of years ago. Um, he's probably the most extreme evaluator I've ever known. Um, and maybe you too, Steve. Um, but he would do private mediations and he would just say, I've thought about this, this is what you should do. And then he would basically make the parties do that. He would just smack them around until they relented to what he came up with. Um, well, obviously that's not, that would probably result in a complaint to Taj. He would be calling us and saying, Art, what the heck are you doing in this mediation, right? So um, now here's the other thing on the other side, right? We can't push people too much. Now I'm a big fan of legal information, right? Anything that people can find on the web, I'm okay with sharing that information. And I can tell you a number of times, I just will pull stuff up. I'm like, well, Here's the statute you're talking about. This is what it says, right? When people don't agree on what the statutes or the statutory schemes say, just pull them up. It's public information. Anybody can do it. Um, so just, I want to keep this in, in everybody's mind. I know that I've said it before. And those of you who have um, been to these presentations before, Renee, I'm talking to you among others. Well, <laughs> we'll recognize this, uh, but it's this. Legal information is saying what you know, the law is what people can find. So if Susan and I are driving down the road and she's driving and I'm the passenger, if I say, hey, Susan, the speed limit on this street is 35 miles an hour, that's legal information. Right? I'm just reporting what this says. 
Legal advice, on the other hand, is if we're dry, if Susan's driving down the road and I say, Susan, slow down, you're speeding. Right? What I've done is I've taken the information from the law and I've looked at her the speedometer or something along those lines. And then I've, and, and now I've done an analysis to say she's going too fast and therefore the law is going to do something uh, in this particular situation. So just know the difference between those two. Now, people will say, ah, oh, I was pressured into doing this. Uh, you know, I was uh, under duress and things along those lines. What they are typically saying is they felt like they didn't have a choice or they were stressed in making these decisions. And there's a lot of pressure on litigants. I don't doubt by any stretch of the imagination that people feel stressed or duress because they're making decisions they don't want to. They feel pressured, but that pressure is not coming from me, the mediator. That pressure is coming from circumstances, the legal circumstances or non-legal situations that are impacting this particular situation. So we're not talking about duress in like a contract way that a contract can be voided. And by the way, that duress has to be kind of high. It's like, you know, the mob coming and say, we're gonna bust your kneecaps kind of duress. Um, so we cannot personally ensure that they make informed choices because people can make very terrible choices on their own. We see it every day. And we cannot ensure that they are free of any pressures that are impacting them. So that's really where we are um, with self-determination. Susan, is there anything you wanted to add on this slide? Um, no, I think we've covered it well. Okay. Thank you. And then confidentiality. Um, this, the joint model standards basically say um, you want to make sure that the parties understand or have a correct um, expectation of, of confidentiality, whatever that standard happens to be. And it's different all across the country. Some places use um, basically the equivalent of Federal Rule 408. Uh, and that is federal rule of evidence. So they use evidentiary rules. Now here's the thing about evidentiary rules in state court and in federal court. There are ways to get around them. And so in Arizona, we don't use rules, we use a statute. So the statute is 122238, and that is a very, very strong statute. I'll come back to that um, in a second. So. There's a third way that you could have confidentiality protection in mediation, and that is by contract. And what is that contract? That contract is in our agreement to mediate that the Justice Court uses. So um, you have rules, you have statutes, you have contracts. Our contract basically incorporates the statute so that everybody will know that this is the standard that's being used. So with 1222.38, there are two parts to pay attention to. The first part says mediation is confidential, period. So that's really, really strong. And then it explains what that means in court processes. Mediators cannot be subpoenaed. Communications cannot be used in evidence. Materials created for mediation cannot be used in further proceedings in this case or another case. Um, so that part is really strong and we have some good case law on that that explains it uh, pretty explicitly. What we do not have 
is private. On the private side, that's where it's gray. And we might have a right without a remedy in those situations. What do I mean by that? So let's say that um, Kanye West and Kim Kardashian are in Arizona, and this is where their divorce is gonna be. They're going through mediation because they have, I don't know, three kids or something along those lines, right? They're gonna be using uh, mediators, they're gonna be doing all this stuff. And what happens when they finish today's mediation session? Is Kim Kardashian gonna go on her reality TV show and then start trashing Kanye West? She could do that. She could. Um, is Kanye West gonna hold a press conference afterwards and start trashing Kim Kardashian? He might do that. He could do that. But the statute says that mediation is confidential. So how would they prove that they've how would they have a cause of action based on this statute? They would have to prove that they're damaged in some way. So maybe Kanye would have to say, you know, his relationship with their children has been impacted and put some kind of a monetary value to it. Or maybe just get a temporary restraining order or a restraining order requiring somebody not to discuss it in public and then come up with um, a liquidated damages type provision. What is liquidated damages? Just simply says if you do X, the damages are a number, whatever they happen to be. So let's just say $5,000. Um, of course, in the West Kardashian household, it would need to be a lot more than that to have any kind of impact. Um, right? So anyhow, this, this is what I mean by having a right without a remedy. Um, and we know that people who are in conflict will many times have somebody who, some third party who they're talking with, like who's counseling them through it. It might be a family member, it might be a best friend, might be their therapist, their pastor, uh, whoever it might be. And um, then what, are they just gonna be like, I can't talk with you about it? You know, what about you have a situation where it's a husband and wife and only one of the spouses is on the pleading Right, you might say, well, this is a community property state and therefore they should talk, but that's not what the statute says. That's not what our statute says. The other place that confidentiality comes into play is if you're having separate meetings with your parties um, and just making sure that you're um, upfront with them on um, what you are gonna share or what you can share versus what you cannot share. And um, Susan and I teach mediators basically to say that everything can be used going forward, can be shared unless specifically prohibited from doing so. And even then we might engage in a negotiation with our parties to say, okay, why is that? This is really good. This might be really helpful. So this is stuff that you all presumably know um, pretty well. Now, quality of the process, standard six. Standard six is a really big one because it basically says this. It starts off by saying that mediations must be conducted within the scope, you know, enforcing these uh, standards. And if you can't, then um, the quality of process is impacted and you may, you may want to terminate the session. So there are a couple that come up um, quite consistently. Um, one of them is promoting honesty and candor amongst your disputing parties. And um, 
this means you're not always going to know if people are not telling the truth. Um, but sometimes parties will tell you, I want you to tell them X after they've been saying not X for a long time. And so that's these are times where it's a good practice to engage in a conversation with your with your parties at that moment. Um, sometimes you can just tell based on the whole circumstances of things that this might be questionable. Again, an opportunity for more time for asking questions. If you think this person is lying through their teeth, they're saying they're going to do something and they're not going to do it, and you get that your gut just starts to tell you this is really a bad situation, you can withdraw and step back and call the mediation off. That's okay. Um, another one is mixing the role of mediators and other professionals. This is where, right, talking about legal evaluation, giving legal advice can come into play, and that's where we see this more often than not. By the way, one thing that you should expect when you give legal information, sometimes that legal information is all somebody needs to know what to do next. And you will hear attorneys who take advantage of people not knowing what the law says, say, stop giving this person legal advice. That's when you can say, I'll be giving them legal information. Let me tell you, legal information is anything you can find on the internet. And here it is. By the way, when I say anything you can find on the internet, I don't mean crackpot legal theories, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm actually talking about um, what the law says and things along those lines. Um, I don't know that any of us have had situations where our justice court mediations are furthering criminal conduct. Um, I haven't had anything along those lines over the years, but it's something certainly to be um, aware of. And the other is just if you have participants who are just um, making it so you can't really have a mediation. And uh, I had some last year, I had a situation where we had a um, we had a, actually a lawyer um, and a person who worked for this lawyer and the lawyer, I can't remember who was suing whom. I think the employee was suing the lawyer, but they got into a screaming match and uh, we called the mediation off and uh, we really got them sort of settled down and we were getting the paperwork to them. And in the hallway, they almost got into a fight, almost fisticuffs. And I told my student, I was like, you got to go get the sheriffs. You got to get those guys right now. So she ran down the hall uh, to get them. And um, about the time she probably got to the sheriffs, this is up at the Northeast uh, Justice Facility. They didn't get into a fight, but boy, were they yelling at each other. So that's the closest I've seen to that. Um, but my other, I had another partner who used to help me, uh, Rick Pate. And Rick once had a situation where he had a couple guys and he thought they about were, were about to go to blows in the middle of the situation. Um, and so he had to really uh, bring the clamp down. So just looking at the uh, chat really quickly, Steve Gattal says, um, you know, just note that legal information or advice can be misunderstood. So number one, we're not going to give legal advice, but legal information, information can be misunderstood. We want to do it as simply and plainly as possible. <clears throat> and then we're going to talk about, let's uh, put this question from Jason about mental capacity <clears throat> towards the end. Let's just come back to that after we finish this deck of slides, Susan, before we go off into our... Okay situations. Hold on a second. I need to take okay. a quick drink. Getting a, 
I get so excited by mediation, I'm getting a little choked up. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, so I think, um, Susan, it's your turn now. Practice uh, considerations. Yes, practice considerations. Um, so these um, standards are in, in your material. Uh, we have provided that to you, or, or Charles has, and we would ask you to review these at your leisure. We are highlighting on some of these what we think is important, but there's much more in them that you should uh, read and become familiar with. So the focus on practice considerations is standard uh, seven, advertising and solicitation, not really applicable too much to the justice court, but again, on the honesty and candor idea to be truthful and not misleading in all communications, about your qualifications and experience, and do not make promises about outcomes in any of your communications. Uh, standard eight talks to and refers to fees and other charges. Again, to be complete in any information that you might give for fees, expenses, and other charges. The standards also go on to say that if you're going in private practice, you, it is best, or you should have these in writing, so it is clear to the parties what they are going to be responsible for and how payment is to be made. And there are no contingency fee arrangements. This was a big one early on in the mediation world, but you cannot have contingency fee arrangements based on outcome. And mediators at some point you know, thought, oh, oh, I shouldn't have any problem with that because we can do it in uh, civil matters and other matters. But uh, this is discouraged and should not happen. And lastly, the advancement of the mediation practice, if you take a quick look at that standard, is talking generally about uh, staying informed, perhaps taking other training programs, fostering diversity within the field of mediation, uh, participating in ongoing research, and uh, just to be advance the mediation practice by becoming more informed and taking classes like this one or others that Charles is making available um, to all of you at Justice Corps through these CODEJET trainings. So I think that wraps up practice considerations. Are there questions that any of you have, or did you want to address Mr. Porter's? Is that it, Jason Porter's it, it, Yes. I, I was going to um, raise that question. If you, uh, so the question is, what should you do as a mediator if you suspect mental incapacity on the part of one of the parties in mediation especially when you're not necessarily competent to diagnose mental incapacity. And let, let me just first say, uh, you're almost certainly not competent to diagnose mental incapacity. Uh, but it isn't even just, you might suspect it. Uh, many times we will have self-represented litigants say, I've got an IQ of 75. Uh, what do you do? So what do we do if we take a look at our standards 
what we start to see is a question of standard one, self-determination. Can this individual make as much of informed choices as possible? Is this person, in fact, basically, if they have the capacity to enter into a contract, they have the capacity to engage in a mediation because any outcome would be contractual. Um, the question here strikes me as what does your gut tell you? Not is this person um, in a situation where, um, you know, I can, maybe they are, maybe they are not. This is what I would do. I suggest thinking clear and, if you're going to look for a legal standard, clear and convincing evidence that tells you in your gut that they're not, they don't have the capacity to do so. Um, and you don't have to say that that's the reason why. Um, I would just say I'm uncomfortable going forward with this mediation. Um, and I'm not going to, if I were to say, I don't think that, you know, party B has the capacity to do this. That's kind of insulting in some ways. And I don't want to come right out and say it. Um, and so I might say this one might be better for a court to take under consideration. Um, and so again, it's not, uh, this is a situation that's fuzzy, right? Um, we can't ensure that they're making free and informed choices, right? But we do want a good quality of the process. And I'm going to turn to um, standard six uh, really quickly and just say that, you know, all of the standards, um, when I say all of the standards, I mean like various standards out there will have something about capacity, but there's no real sort of test or anything along those lines that any of them will say. Um, they'll just have the conclusion about capacity. And so it's left for us in our discretion to make that decision. So Jason, it's not necessarily the uh, most complete answer, but I'm going to hand it off to Susan to see if she has anything to add on this one. So I hate to answer a question with a question, but um, it is but Jason, was there something in particular that happened to you, or is this a generic um, question? Because I think our talking about is do it, it's a low threshold. If they know what the situation is and they're able to make a decision or resolve a situation and have the capacity to at least understand what say a contract is or an agreement is etc maybe you can continue but i'm getting a sense from this question that if it's more than that what do you do so one thought i had or i was going to ask art would you perhaps have a caucus with that party to determine for yourself whether or not you think they may have the capacity to enter into uh the mediation and be able to speak for themselves and if not then I'm going to ask Charles or Taj if the mediator then um, withdraws or decides not to go forward with the mediation, does it then go back to staff to reschedule or reassign or what would you do with this? It, it most likely would be rescheduled and reassigned. <clears throat> or reassigned. Okay. And then um, to Mr. Porter, who's on the line, is there anything that you wanted? Does that answer your question? 
Um, yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's really interesting because I was in talking about this, I was thinking I recently had to help my parents with some Medicare issues. And I don't know if any of you uh, have done this, but if you have, you'll know that Medicare is very complicated uh, and it's very confusing. And so my parents got confused with just how things work and issues with their insurance company. But I don't think that that means that they're they don't have the capacity to enter into a contract or enter into a con, you know, to engage in legal proceedings or anything along those lines. So, right, you're just trying to figure out gradations of where people are. And, you know, I've had this situation, and maybe uh, you have too, Susan, where somebody comes in and says, I have power of attorney for my mom who is incapacitated. Um, right. right. So, that's also an interesting question. What, uh, what do you do in those situations? In the one that I had, and um, it, it was a gentleman, a, a father who was quite elderly, and the son was there and wasn't sure if the father was going, so he's being sued and to understand it. So there was a, perhaps an incapacity issue, and there was uh, health issues involved. So the son was there to be able to participate in the mediation. However, when he gave me the power of attorney, it was to represent the father in the mediation to sign for him. And what I learned from talking to, I think it was the clerk at the time, I had a question for staff whether or not the power of attorney would be effective. And I was told no because, uh, well, for whatever reason, I was just told that the power of attorney, of attorney was not going to work insofar as the man who was being sued, that is the father, that had some uh, hearing issues and understanding issues. So um, I think we continued with the mediation. I don't think that it got resolved, but the issue of how the power of attorney is handled it's one that might be a hot topic. Yeah, and Charles, is there a specific protocol for us on this? My understanding is that power of attorney does, is not uh, enough for people to engage in mediation on behalf of uh, whomever it might be. Uh, particularly if you're an attorney mediator, that I think that would be the unauthorized practice of law. Uh, so, I mean, generally a power of attorney is fairly useless in, in courts. I also did want to point out there is an ethics opinion from the Judicial Conduct, Judicial Advisory Board on um, disabled individuals and the unauthorized practice of law uh, requirements are not waived or lessened for disabled people. Um, they can't have their grandmother speak for them or represent them in, in court. They would need to hire an attorney. Uh, you, you might want to address if, how that would apply in the mediation, um, whether the mediator is an attorney or not an attorney or if that would matter. Um, and and so, Steve Gattel just you know, also said, should point out for an authorized practice of law. Um, oh. So two things come to mind. The first one is is that if 
this if this person I, I've had situations where somebody just shows up and says I have the power of attorney for my dad and this isn't happening today it's it it's a no it counts as a swing and a miss in my book um, we're not going to go forward we're not going to talk about it now if this if the two parties want to talk in the hallway that's up to them um, now, um, when it comes to unauthorized practice of law issues, one of the good things that we have is that since we are uh, officers of the court, um, there are exceptions for unauthorized practice of law in those situations. It doesn't matter if you're an attorney mediator or not an attorney mediator. Um, okay, so we've, we've done this one quite a bit. Uh, let's go to these uh, hypos, uh, Susan. I'm gonna go to the first one. Our first ethics scenario. Yeah, so, uh, so ethical scenario number one, um, we are going to put the, well, let me just say, this is Paula, she's an active member of a church and a trained mediator. We would like you to take uh, two minutes to read this scenario to yourselves and consider what ethical issues might be present, maybe what standards might be applicable and then we will come back together and discuss. So I'm going to put my timer on for two minutes to make sure it's really two minutes. So here we go. It's also in the, I don't think the PowerPoint slides that you have pictures of uh, are big enough to actually read this. The ones on the screen might be easier to read. Uh, we're at 45 seconds, 15. Susan, did you bounce out for a minute there? Okay, so are we ready? We're back Let's together. Yep. So Paula has, uh, she has back-to-back -back mediations, which happens to many of us, and she finds that the church's president has plopped down in front of her, and she sees the court file. So what should Paula do? and what ethical issues are there so does somebody want to chime in here or i think i'll call 
on one of you. Anybody feel like responding? Is that Michael? Sure. Okay. Well, the ethical issue is that uh, there's going to be the appearance of uh, conflict and uh, uh, because uh, uh, Paula is an active member and uh, what Paula right. should do, Paula, Paula, sorry, did, did I go mute? All right, so yeah, um, uh, I think the, the issue is that there's an appearance of, of a conflict um, and uh, perhaps an appearance of uh, impropriety. Paula is an active member of the church and what Paula should do is she should uh, uh, you know explain to those present that uh, the, uh, she can't help with the mediation because of uh, the relationship with the, the church and uh, a, if a new, another mediator is available then uh, perhaps that mediator can assist otherwise it uh, you know it's going to have to be rescheduled for another date and time for a, another mediator to uh, to assist. So basically, um, you're saying uh, it, 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 she has to explain. She'll be explaining that she's an active member of the church. She um, will not be able to mediate it, and you're saying she will need to recuse herself. Correct? Yes, basically. Yeah, and that. So the standards that you talked about, um, the appearance of a conflict of interest, I think it was conflict of interest, that would be standard three, maybe three A. And um, other, when you use the word conflict, uh, I also got the impression that you also meant the bias part, maybe impartiality, that she would appear biased, right? Yes, it, it could, at least in the in the other uh, party, uh, well, actually in case of both parties, create an impression that, you know, the church president may say, oh, wow, you know, Paula is an active member, so Paula is going to favor us, and the other side, if they learn of the connection and relationship, may, may feel the same way, that they were, they, uh, the mediator was favoring one party over another. And it, it creates the, that, that appearance. Right. So even if she doesn't know the church president, let's say she doesn't know him, but the fact that she's an active member of his church would be the potential conflict of interest, correct? Or clearly the appearance of a conflict. Yeah, it's 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 primarily the appearance in my uh, in my mind. Yeah. And anything else? Does anybody else have uh, different? Uh, response or art, anything you'd like to add to scenario yeah, I see, one? I see Steve Gattel uh, waving his hand there. Steve. Steve, we can't hear you for some reason. You're, um... Charles, do we have to do something to get Steve on the microphone? His microphone is green, so I don't know why we don't hear him. Steve, you may have to just type it in the text box. Okay, and then we may need to move on. <laughs> yeah, we, Steve, we still got nothing. I, I suggest you type it, type the point in the text, in the, excuse me, in the chat box, um, so we can address it. And thank you, Michael, for your comment. Yes. 
All right, so while Steve is uh, doing this, uh, we're gonna go to scenario number two. Um, it's basically a lawsuit uh, that's a fallout after a terrible school shooting incident. Um, and we'll give you a couple minutes to review this and then we'll do the same drill. We'll ask some questions. And Steve, you can type that in and uh, we'll definitely get to your point. So we've got one more minute before we start discussions. And Steve, I see your comments, so we'll bring that up right get into scenario two. Is this now we got you a little bit. We've got you a little bit there. All right, we've got uh, 15 seconds on this one. Now, I don't think this is one that we would see in the justice courts, and time is up. We'll start discussing. So before we get into scenario two, um, Steve, your point, it sounds like, is that a church isn't just the people who operate the church. The church is the whole organization, everybody who comprises a part of it. Is that it? Yeah. yeah. Yes, my, my concern is you don't even have a... Um an appearance of contract that's a direct conflict. She's an active member. She may even park in the, other, in the fellow's parking lot. Um, and so, I mean, she and where the party's not represented um, and they may feel, oh, I was sent here by the court. I know what she's saying, but I've got to go back. The judge isn't going to be happy. I think the, the mediator just has to back out of it and advise the court that they can't because otherwise there would be pressure on the non non attorney represented party to go forward with it. Correct. I think at the Correct. end of the day they probably wouldn't be satisfied, which is distinguishable from number two. And that that mediation should not um, that mediation should not go forward. And plus don't forget that sometimes in these situations, you know, Paula the mediator might want to say I'm going to show that everybody how fair I am and actually take it out on the church uh, and be unfair the other way, be favoring the other party, overly so, mm -hmm. to prove how fair uh, they might be. 
Um, so scenario two is a situation um, and in where there's been a school shooting and there is a lawsuit that has arisen out of this school shooting, um, just terrible, lots of victims. And um, turns out that the um, lawyers in the situation, like this one individual experienced mediator to mediate this case, experienced mediator's father happens to have been an administrator for the school district who was in charge of safety and defense plans at each school. Um, now, experienced mediator has disclosed this fact and the part the attorneys still say, yeah, we wanna do this and our clients will go along with it if you are the person, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go along with this. So is this a case that experienced mediator should accept? And Renee, are you there? Because I'm going to ask you if this one, if you're there. I'm here, but you keep breaking up. I'm sorry. Can you tell me what you said one more time? Sure. I was talking about scenario two, a school shooting, and we have an experienced mediator who all the attorneys want. Um, and this is a big case with hundreds of victims. And experienced mediator's father happened to be an administrator for the school district who was in charge of safety plans and defense drills and defense uh, ideas on each campus in the oh, school district. Oh, you want to know if the mediator should hear the case? Right. Everybody, so the, all the attorneys all say, we want you because you're the best. We'll have everybody sign waivers. Should experienced mediator no, take this case? It. Why, why is that? Well, what if it backfires, it's going to come on me because I, I could have perhaps could have been accused of having input, uh, could have been accused of hearing my father tell me details. Um, perhaps I am biased, um, not even knowing I'm biased, and maybe they didn't do something they should have done. I just think that it's just a little dangerous for the mediator to pursue down that avenue. All right. Well, you're, you're right on. You're spot on. I hope that after scenario one, scenario two seems super easy, but even the easy ones are much more trickier um, than you would expect. Thank you so much, Renee. Uh, and thanks for, uh, I feel like a game show host. Thanks for playing here on Mediation is Right. <laughs> oh, yay, um, what's my prize? I get to mediate, right? Uh, yeah, you get more Not mediations, <laughs> right? It's, it's kind All of right. like, you know, you. It's when you win the pie eating contest, what do you get? More pie. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Um, so the reason that I, I uh, put this one in here is that this I am on the ABA's um, uh, standing committee for eth mediator ethical guidance, and this is a scenario that's based on a real live mediation, um, mm -hmm. and something that's in front of uh, my this group with the ABA. So um, about a year ago actually, um, I was contacted by a survivor of the victim of the Mandalay Bay shooting. Um, you remember that's where uh, there was a guy who took up a bunch of high-powered rifles at the top of the Mandalay, uh, one, I can't remember which uh, hotel it was, but he went up to the top and knocked out the window and then there was a huge concert outside um, and he just picked up his guns and started firing into the concert. And so create a stampede, many people killed, many people injured by the stampede, on and on. 
-hmm. And um, so huge, massive tort cases. Um, and I want to say there are maybe like 800 to 1,000 plaintiffs um, who are suing. And in this case, um, what's interesting about it is that all of the attorneys wanted this former Nevada judge to be the mediator. She is reported to have great experience uh, with the most difficult of cases, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and her father was the person who was head of risk management and safety of all of the uh, MGM hotels. And she disclosed this conflict and the attorney said, we want her, we want you. Um, all the attorneys on both sides, right? The uh, insurance company, the casinos, and the plaintiff's lawyers all said they wanted her. And they even had people sign waivers of the conflict, their clients signed waivers. And the question is, should she accept this? And Renee's point is well, well stated. Um, now, I wanna point out standard three E. So by the way, I guess presumably she went ahead and did this mediation. I wrote about this and it's in your materials. So there's a short yeah. article right. that goes over three pages in your materials discussing this. Um, and standard 3E says a mediator shall withdraw, right? If a mediator's conflict of interest might reasonably be viewed as undermining the integrity of the mediation, that's the key. Integrity of the mediation, the mediator shall withdraw. It doesn't mean you might think about it and get waivers. It says you must withdraw. And 3E goes further to say, regardless of what the expressed desire to the parties is to the contrary. So even if they were to, um, as they did in the Mandalay Bay case, have expressed waivers, et cetera, et cetera, this mediator should not have taken the case, but she did. And presumably she's in the, probably still doing it. Um, so that's what's going on now. Um, I will say that I posted on this on uh, my uh, Twitter feed, which has all of five followers. And um, they, somehow it got to the firm of the mediators and they, they uh, tweeted something back that had a picture of Pinocchio with his nose growing <laughs> in response to me pointing that out that this was uh, a problem. Now, I have to say all the attorneys in the case, they just, well, they didn't care. They're just all going forward. So this just goes to show how rough it is to be a uh, plaintiff in a mass tort. It doesn't really matter. Once you sign this document, it's done. And, um, you know, that really is just, I'm going to call it meat grinder justice for lack of a better um, word. Um, so Susan, it looks like we have time for one more of these. So let's go to the next one. Okay. All right. Are you, do you want to lead us through it? Uh, I don't see scenario three up. Is it? Did you put it up? I did. Maybe your screen has frozen. Um, oh, did it? Okay. So if scenario three is up, you want to mark off. Let's uh, do this again. Read the scenario. This is um, an HOA dispute between uh, the HOA president and a homeowner. 
and oh, I see it now. Uh, it's between a homeowner. Take a look at this. Uh, consider the ethical considerations of what you would do. Okay, I'll right. give us our two minutes. All right, I'll give you your two minutes starting now. Okay, we still got 50 seconds, five zero seconds. Five, four, three, two, two. one. Okay, right. so who would like to try this one? Um, what ethical considerations do you see here? Who would like to take a stab at this? Oh, my. I can't call Renee again. Uh you're right. You can't call Renee again. Thank you. <laughs> Love it. Oh, and Mondo, I can see your picture there. Did you want to weigh in? No, no, not there. Terry Smith. Oh, come on. Paul. You know, I knew it was going to be me. Oh, is it because you do HOAs or something? No, I just had this uh, clairvoyant position. Uh, so. Oh, Terry. Okay. Okay. So my position is that the mediator has now demonstrated a bias and would have to oh. weigh whether or not that they, that the mediator could proceed given his bias against um parents that l allow their children to run amok. Um, yes, the Im impartiality or that bias. Uh, so that would be 2B1, uh, that standard. And so impartiality, uh, good, good. Even though the joke was not during the mediation, as you understand, as we've been talking about, this is all part of the mediation process. 
So it's not like you take breaks and you're not uh, within the context of the mediation. Uh, so good point. Are there any other ethical considerations here? Any other standards that may be applicable that anybody else can think of? But that's great, Barry. Susan, may I ask a question? Yes. So, right, we have a party who's trying to take advantage of a potential bias. Um, does this mediator have to withdraw from the case or can this mediator go forward? Oh, Art, what do the standards tell us? Uh, that you break into caucus and Mrs. Brown reveals that she and her neighbors believe that Mrs. Green couldn't care less about her kids. So you found out there's a possible conflict of interest and probably you need to recuse yourself. Is it going to affect the rest of the mediation? Uh, so I think that uh, there's a problem there. Uh, let me ask you, if everybody joked about that together, um, what's their problem? What do the rest of you think? How many of you would continue with the mediation? Show of hands. I think you can continue. You think you can continue? I think um, you can. What do you say to Ms. Green? when you talk to her all right so this is interesting because right we have we say the joke together now we're in caucusing you're with this party you're with miss brown and miss brown says by the way miss green over there terrible with her kids falls right into the thing that you talked about does miss green even mm -hmm. know about this conversation do you need to disclose it to her or do you have a conversation here and just keep it here Right? Mm -hmm. So my sense is that I could see, this is the one thing about mediator ethics. If you're too uncomfortable and you can't go forward, you should totally withdraw from the case. I think a mediator can go forward just by talking with Ms. Brown over here, and we don't have to give it to Ms. Green. We could even say that you know, Miss Green is trying to say some things, right? Miss Green has brought this up. Um, just know that this is a concern of theirs going forward. And, you know, I did say that joke. It was in bad taste. I apologize. That's not my true feeling. I was just trying to get a, a quick, easy laugh. Right? So you can yeah. work on it on both sides in both caucuses. And I think you could keep going forward in this mediation. So but, if you were thinking about this under competence or that would uh, a takeaway from this for the people that are on this call be eh, unless you really really know the parties maybe not good to have these little jokes or uh, maybe humor is good uh, you know to add some humor did it help the mediation how do people feel about that because you you did have a little joke in here but uh, it ended up going awry. Well, you know, um, we're almost out of time. So Paul in the Paul Winberg in the chat says, 
this could be a whole session on its own. I don't know if we can get an hour and a half out of it, but you know, this could be something we put in the hot topics program. Um, and so that's good. And I know that we got some stuff, Taj, you sent some stuff for us along for the hot topics program. Um, and if anybody else has some things to add for the hot topics program, we're totally game. Um, I know that Ken Diamond had a couple things that he wanted us to talk about. Um, so, and we, and Charles' suggestion of doing the rest of these scenarios during hot topics, Charles, we'll take you up on that. Um, and then I guess, Susan, is there anything that you want to say in closing before we hand it off to Charles and Taj to wrap it up? Uh, no, just if there are any hot topics, send those along. And we will continue with some of these scenarios with hot topics because it seems that it is helpful. Uh, can I just get a show of hands of people that have enjoyed doing these to help us in our planning? <laughs> right. I'm getting... Uh, well, Tosh, we'll put it in the Tosh chat. Yes. <laughs> put it in the so, chat if you liked it. All right, thanks, Jason. Because um, we'll probably do this. Um, we might be doing it in Zoom so that we can actually uh, do conversations a little bit easier. Uh, but keep a lookout on that. Again, it's going to be June 30th uh, when we do the next set. Um, so with that, Charles and Taj, we're going to hand it back to you so that you can do whatever wrap up you need to do. And thank you, Art. This was great. And thank you all for coming. Yeah, thank, thank you, you Susan. Thank you, Art. Thank you, Susan. Uh, it was a great session. Uh, the materials will be in Hightail. The CoJet certificate will be at the end of the materials. I'm going to put this on YouTube and as an audio-only podcast. And um, again, uh, as they indicated, if you have anything that you want to add for the uh, Hot Topics class, send it to uh, me or Taj or to Art or Susan directly, and we will see you on June 30th. Thank you, everybody. Um, All right. Charles, thank, thank you. you. Taj, nice to have seen you. Can anyone hear what I just said? I can hear you now. Oh, good. Okay. This must just be the settings. Thank you. Thank you all, Good and program. I'll meet you all in person at some point soon in the not-too-distant future. Oh, good. like that.